Thank you for tuning in to Bible Storming Podcast, a work of Scattered Abroad, which is overseen by the East Hill Church of Christ in Pulaski, Tennessee. You can find our website at scatteredabroad.org. In this podcast, our aim is to help you be intentional in how you think about the Bible. It is more than just reading the words. It is about diving deep into the text. So let's study together. Here is your host, Daniel Webster. Hey, everybody. Daniel here, and I have a confession to make, and that's this. I am awful at time management, or at least it would seem so. Caleb Colley and I, and Caleb is my, my guest for this episode, we sat down and we were fully intending to record an episode of 15 minutes max. That was our goal. That's what we set before we started recording. 45 minutes later, we were done with our conversation. So, what we're doing is, is we're splitting this episode up into three parts. You're getting two bonus episodes of the Bible Storming Podcast, three different episodes dealing with the argument from morality for the existence of God. And, and for me, this conversation was really intriguing, really just, just fun to talk with Caleb about this argument, and I hope that you will find something of value for you. So th- this first episode is going to deal with introducing the argument and introducing the first premise of the argument and discussing maybe what the atheist will say in response to it. So without further ado, here's the first episode. And remember to catch the next two parts of this episode as they drop. Hey there, and welcome to the Bible Storming Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Webster, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, Caleb Colley. How you doing, man? Great. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for joining me. I've, I've been so excited for this episode for a while now because, first of all, I love talking with Caleb about, about the deep things of Scripture and, and theology, spirituality. He's, he's just a really thoughtful guy. I love hearing his sermons. And so I'm so excited to have him on here today as we talk about the, mor- the morality argument for the existence of God. Now, one of the things that, that I think is really interesting as we start to talk about this, this concept of proving God's existence and the, the concept of what, what's called Christian apologetics is that the Bible writers, in, in many ways, never present a formal argument for theism. They, they never come out and say, given this and this, God exists. That They do a great job, a, a thorough job, of proving God's existence and passages like Romans 1, Acts 17, Psalm 19. But what's, what's really interesting is that the Bible just begins with God. In Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Psalm 90, verse 2, Moses wrote that God is from everlasting and to everlasting. He is a self-existent being. So no, it's not absolutely not that, that studying the existence of God is an unbiblical concept. On the contrary, there's nothing more biblical to talking about whether or not God exists. And, and we might say there's almost nothing that would change our lives quite as much as how we answer this question for ourselves of whether or not God exists. And today I'm so excited to discuss the morality argument for God's existence because it may be my favorite argument because it's so simple and yet so powerful. Caleb, if you will, go ahead and just introduce us to this argument and maybe maybe just tell us why it's, it's such an important argument for God's existence. 
Okay, well, the way I present it is, premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties are not real. Premise two, objective moral values and duties are real. And then the conclusion is, therefore, God exists. And I think this is a powerful argument for God's existence because the premises are so seemingly true to people around us. They're so almost self-evidently true. That is that we really do have a deep sense of objective right and wrong, that there are actions people can take that are not just personal preferences, that are not just reflections of social norms or taste or just something that people might choose as an individual or as a group, but really are either abominations or requirements or things that are permissible. We have a strong sense of right and wrong. So it's difficult on any other position, I'm going to say nigh unto impossible, to satisfactorily explain where these senses come from, where these ideas of objective moral values and duties come from, apart from God. A person could suppose that there is some other source other than God, but there is no good candidate. So a person is going to be on pains of irrationality to deny that God exists in the face of such strong evidence. Right. It's it's almost like this argument works so well for, for so many people today because almost everybody, at least that, that we normally interact with on a day-to-day basis, accepts both premises. They accept that and especially once you once you explain to them what they what the premises mean that if God does not exist, then objective and, and by objective we mean it doesn't depend on what anybody on earth thinks. That right. objective moral values and duties don't exist. That they believe that. And then they also believe the second premise that objective moral values and duties do exist. They've just never connected the two into the conclusion that therefore God exists. And so that's why one of the reasons why I love this argument so much, because it really appeals to people's moral sense, that their moral oughtness, we might say, what they believe that the world should be like. That's so, right. Of course, many people deny the first premise on the basis that they think you can have morality without God. But usually what they mean is it's possible for a person to do good things without believing in God. And right. the argument has nothing to do with that. And that's, I mean, that's usually when you use this argument, that is going to be most people's first reaction. That So if an atheist stops someone from robbing a bank, oh, did they just, did they not do a good thing? But that's, that's not the question at all. It's not, can, can, the question that this argument is presenting is not, can we be good without God? Or, or can we know what good or right or bad or wrong is? without believing in God. The question is, can any of those things be possible without the existence of God? And, and I think that's, that's a really, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really important distinction to make for, for our listeners, especially for those who, who are atheists or, or skeptics, not sure about the existence of God, that we're, we're not saying that people cannot be good or do good things without believing in God. We're saying that it's impossible to have an objective moral standard, something that, that doesn't depend on human opinion without some greater being. And that greater being is, is the one whom we would call God, and the Bible calls God. That's right, so, and there's no good reason to think that our uh, 
our sense of objective morality is the product of evolution either. Oh, as absolutely. problematic as that theory is, there's no account of how morality could arise from animals. And furthermore, if it is the product of evolution, then our notions of truth, our beliefs about morality and all of our other beliefs are not geared toward truth making. They're geared toward survival. And then we have no reason to think, therefore, that they are true. Right. Absolutely. And I think this is this is kind of getting into the, the first premise. Am I, am I right in saying that? That sure. this is kind of starting to talk about the atheist's probably main objection to the first premise. Right. Absolutely. So we want to respond to that by saying we would we would need to see evidence that objective morality could arise from evolution. And there's no case to be made for that. There would just be herd instinct or there would just be a survival instinct, but that's just different. What the animals do in practicing what comes from instinct is just qualitatively different, not just quantitatively different, but qualitatively different from what people do. There's an intrinsic difference in the reasons why it's, it's not a decision. It's, it's merely instinct. That's right. They don't reflect on right and wrong and they eat their young or they eat their mates. We don't take our moral cues from animals. That's because moral principles don't apply to them. They're not in moral categories as human beings are. And nobody thinks that animals should be censured or praised for what they do. Right. Like when a lion kills and, and eats a zebra, the, the lion has killed the zebra, right. but he didn't murder the zebra. They're, they're mm-hmm. not in the moral realm. Right. I think that's, that's, that's a really good point. That, that's really important to make as, as we talk about, especially the first premise. And, and maybe, how would you, okay, I know we, we've talked about it, but just to, to step back for a second, how would you just briefly summarize maybe the atheist or the evolutionist main or most popular response to the first premise that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties are not real? I suppose the, the most frequent response is to say that there is such widespread agreement mm. about these things and that somehow, I don't think the atheist is typically going to say it this way, but it's that if, if enough people believe in it, it sort of becomes the objective truth of, about it. Right. So, for example, it's just so universally accepted that it's wrong to rape little children. So that means it's objectively the case that it's wrong to rape little children. But that doesn't follow. The number of people who believe in something has nothing to do with whether it's true. We might begin to look at the evidence for its truth based on the number of people who believe it, but you could have a vast majority of people believing in something that is false, such as the flatness of the earth, for example. (laughs) And even if the Nazis had succeeded in exterminating or brainwashing all of the people who disagreed with them, what the Nazis did in murdering 6 million Jews and many other people would still have been wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's probably... Go ahead. I was just going to add, when we talk about objectivity... What we mean is, as you said, that an objective fact is what it is independent of what anybody takes it to be. So even if nobody believes 
in the wrongness of what the Nazis did. It's still wrong. So we're not counting heads. We're not trying to see how many people agree with or disagree with. We're trying to find the objective fact of the matter. And if God exists, then he is uniquely in a position to tell all people what's right and wrong. Right. And and I love the the example that you brought up and, and not love that it happened, obviously, but but I love how how powerful it is of the Nazis and 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 what they did. So we 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 know what happened in in Nazi Germany in the 1930s 1940s they believed that they were a superior race and they believed that other races were inferior such as the Jewish race and 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 some other races but especially the Jewish race and that they murdered 6 million of the approximately 9 million Jews who who were alive in Europe at that time and as well as 3 million other people who just innocent civilians who were, who were murdered for their race or for some disabilities that they had so in their minds they were they were right in do, in, the, in the german minds they, they were right in doing what they did and and after the war was over and obviously the, their side lost the war and so they were brought on trial well they argued that they had not broken any laws, right? Like they, they hadn't broken mm-hmm. German law because they had written their laws, that they were well within their rights. They hadn't broken British law or, or U.S. law because they weren't British or American. So right. how had they done anything wrong? Well, I know you remember that, that in the, these are the Nuremberg trials, that the, the U.S. chief prosecutor of the Nazi war criminals, he said that they had broken a law that was higher than the provincial and the transient. They, they had broken a law, in other words, that all people are amenable to at all times in all places. And even if, like you said, they had won the war and succeeded in, in either taking out or brainwashing every single person on earth to, to where every single person on earth thought that what they did in, in murdering 9 million people was right, it would still have been wrong. And that's, that's what this argument is, is trying to get across, that no matter what people think, even even a majority of people, if they believe something, they can still be wrong morally that they are still wrong or or bad, or the majority just because it believes like that something like generosity is good, just because the majority believes that doesn't make it so. Generosity is good because the nature of God is generous. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Scattered Abroad Network. If you would like to email us, you can do so at thescatteredabroadnetwork at gmail.com. That's thescatteredabroadnetwork at gmail.com. Remember, you can check the show notes below for all of our social media platform links. Also, don't forget that you can find us on all major podcast platforms, and please leave us a rating or review. We hope and pray that this has helped you grow closer to Christ, even though we are scattered abroad. May God bless you.